This evening, we're looking at the whole armour of God. The whole armour of God, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through to 18. We're fast approaching the end of this epistle of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians, the church in Ephesus. I wonder what abiding thoughts and memories you will have of this letter in terms of Paul's doctrine. I don't know about you, but I I, I absolutely love this uh, epistle. There's just so much in there. I guess I love all of um, Paul's writings, the doctrine. I can just eat that doctrine day in and day out. But what are your abiding thoughts, memories of this letter? Well, amongst other things, what sticks in my mind is that the redemption that the Lord Jesus Christ has purchased through his blood is so thoroughly complete that right now, in this present age, Christians are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. How many times have you heard me say that? Quite a lot, I should think. Chapter 1, verse 3. Not just some blessings, one or two blessings, but all spiritual blessings in Christ now. It's not something you have to wait for when you get to heaven. You've got them now. I think you get the point. Christians are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the earnest or the foretaste of their heavenly inheritance as heirs of God and joint heirs of Christ. I'm pinching a few words from Paul's letter to the Romans here. But anyway... The, the, the Ephesians speaks about us being sealed with the Holy Spirit. Not only are we indwelt by him, but we're sealed with him. And he is the foretaste of heavenly things. And so it is, dear Christian, that even now you enter into the holiest where Jesus is and you do so by his blood and you do so with a holy boldness, with a confidence right now. How wonderful that is. And it's not just, um, this isn't just doctrine, is it? It is doctrine, but it's more than that. I I trust it is your experience as a Christian. Yeah, I know we're in the world, but we're not of the world. And in a sense, we are already where Jesus is, certainly in our thoughts, in our meditations. And we have that assurance, that complete assurance that one day we will be with him. There's no doubts about it. And that comes across in this letter. As for the process of becoming a Christian, Paul makes it very clear to all you Christians that before the foundation of the world, God chose you in his dear son to be holy and without blame before him in love. Chapter 1, verse 4, that is. You are saved by the grace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is the gift of God and not of works. Therefore, there will be no boasting in heaven. There will be none of us boasting to one another in heaven about how wonderful we were and how God just couldn't um, turn us away because we're so great. There will be none of that. And we get that in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It's all grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Unmerited favour. 
when you were saved by the grace of God, you were raised up or you were quickened, having been dead in trespasses and sins, just like everyone else in the world comes into this world dead in trespasses and sins, so too were you. However, God has quickened you. He's made you alive in his dear son and has made you a member of that one spiritual body, the church of which the Lord Jesus Christ is head. It's all here in this letter. Despite Paul's teaching that salvation from sin is by the grace of God, there are nevertheless people within the church, the visible church that is, people who wrongly and sometimes strongly insist that when we become Christians, it is the consequence of exercising our free will. How many times have I heard that? Most certainly God makes us willing in that day when he draws us with loving kindness to his son. John chapter 6 verse 44 says, no man can come to me Jesus says, no man can come to me except my Father who sent me, draw him. That's not an exercise of free will. Certainly you would, I don't know, I can't speak for you, but certainly on that day when I became a Christian, I rejoiced in a way that I've never rejoiced before. I didn't come kicking and screaming, but I know, having read and studied the doctrine in the Bible, that that is because God drew me with loving kindness to his son. And that's how it is. Uh, Forget the free will. Once you start bringing free will into it, you're into a religion of works. It's you that um, made the choice. It's it's down to you that you're Christian. And And God is reduced to a God who's just sitting in heaven, hoping and praying that you will exercise your free will. Nothing of the sort. God chose you before the foundation of the world to be holy and without blame in Christ, in love, an everlasting love. And that's a wonderful thing. That's not something to shy away from or, 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 or not to to say to people. It's, it's so wonderful because the flip side of that, that is uh, if God didn't draw us to his son, there wouldn't be one single Christian in this world. Because none of us would exercise a free will to accept Jesus or invite him into our hearts. It's all of God. Don't take anything away from that. And that's a great thing. It's, and it's so great. And that's why me and others in here have a testimony of belonging to Christ. Not because of free will, but because God chose us God saved us through faith in his son and thank God for that. Not only is there a lot of precious doctrine in this letter, there are various exhortations concerning day-to-day conversation, Christian conduct, perhaps chiefly concerning submitting to one another, certainly in love, but... In the fear of the Lord, more specifically, we've seen that wives are to submit to their husbands in obedience to the Lord. Not a very popular thing to say these days. But that's the teaching in the scriptures 
It's a, question, it's a matter of order in the house. We've seen wives are to submit to their husbands and husbands are to love their wives as the Lord Jesus Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Also, children are to obey and honour their parents. Fathers are not to provoke their children to wrath, but are to raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, which involves training them, chastening them, encouraging them and rebuking them. There are even exhortations to slaves to obey their masters with fear and trembling as unto the Lord. And masters of slaves are reminded that they have a heavenly master who, as I pointed out, poured out his blood and laid down his life for Christian slaves every bit as he did for their masters. And we read in Galatians there is neither uh, male nor female, neither Jew nor Greek, neither bond nor free. If we're in Christ, we're all one in Christ. And the blood of Jesus Christ was shed for all, slaves, their masters, males, females, Jews, Gentiles. That's some of what has already been considered, but now we come to chapter 6, verse 10 through to 18. Let's have a look at that now. It's about the whole armour of God. I'll read verse 10 through to 18 in chapter 6. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armour of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armour of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Despite all of the work of redemption being complete, the clear message throughout the Scriptures is that the children of God, those who are saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus, can expect conflict in a hostile world that hates the Lord Jesus Christ. A world whose God is the devil. But such people are not left to their own puny and sinful devices. As Paul said, looking again, verses 10 through to 12 there, Finally, my brethren... Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, 
but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of the world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Note that the call to be strong in the Lord is not just to pastors, it's not just to those who are in Christian ministry, it's a call to all of us who are in Christ and are in this world. And as long as we're in this world and we're Christians, we're going to have daily battles. Without us, from this hostile world that hates Jesus, and also within us. And don't we know about it, eh? The battles without and within. In within us, the lust, uh, the flesh lusting against the spirit, and the spirit, the flesh. I'm sure it's not just me. Christians have no intrinsic strength of their own, but they do have a God who is almighty and whose power can clearly be seen in his creative handiwork. Just have to look around us and it speaks volumes of the power of God, all that he has created. And being specific now, the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, We're told in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 10, And thou, Lord, referring to Jesus, in the beginning has laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. This is Jesus, the Son of God, the Creator God, the one who loved you and who gave himself for you at the cross. As members of the body of Christ, Christians have every reason to say that they are more than conquerors through him that loved them and they have no excuse for being weak and cowardly. They are to go forward in the strength of the Lord, day in and day out. Note that the battle is spiritual and you are to stand against the wiles of the devil and his army of demons, as variously described in verse 12. I'm not going to go into all the words of verse 12, but essentially that is one big description of evil spiritual forces. Verse 12. And ultimately, that is what our battle is against in this world. If you care to study the later chapters in Daniel, and we're going to be coming to it in a couple of weeks' time, you'll see that spiritual warfare against evil spirits is intense in this world, far more so than people, including Christians, really appreciate. I got a sense of that when I lived in India, the the, the battle, the daily battle against spiritual forces, demons, It seems to be more in your face there. You can almost smell it. And it's not quite the same here. I guess maybe it's just a different different strategy that the devil employs. I don't know. But suffice to say that ultimately the daily battle is against the devil and his demons. And it is so intense... Listen to what Abraham Kuyper, who was a theologian and Prime Minister of the Netherlands, observed. I quite like this, uh, what he's had to say. If once the curtain were pulled back 
and the spiritual world behind it came to view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense, so convulsive, sweeping everything within its range, that the fiercest battle ever fought on earth would seem by comparison a mere game. I I can't remember when it was, just a few weeks ago I think I pointed out to you that um, when at the grand opening ceremony of a, a, a tunnel that goes all the way through a mountain in Switzerland at the opening ceremony of it and there were some of the world leaders assembled at that gathering and you could see it for yourself it's it's you can find it on YouTube it was an orgy of worshipping satanic forces that a huge theatrical production was put on for the world's elite and what was seen were people dressed as demons and the devil himself weaving in and out of those demons the whole thing was horrible and at the end of it all the world leaders I'm by world leaders I'm talking about the chancellor of Germany for example and others stood up and gave a standing ovation to something that was clearly, openly satanic. This is the world we live in. We need to realise this. And I think if you don't, you'll you'll realise it more and more as we continue with the book of Daniel on Sunday mornings. When I became a Christian, I very quickly distanced myself from an elderly Baptist preacher who lived nearby to me. At first, I was really keen to uh, make his acquaintance and speak to him about the Bible and so on, him being a Baptist preacher, but I distanced myself from him. When it soon became apparent, and I thank God for this, for making it apparent to me, a very young and naive Christian that I was at the time, or not young in age, but a new Christian, and uh, it became apparent that this elderly Baptist preacher did not believe that the devil is a literal creature, a literal creature at all. He is just a, a representation of all that is evil. That clearly is not right. And I can think of someone who would love us all to think that, The devil himself. Wouldn't he love it if we all thought that he didn't really exist? He doesn't want everybody thinking that he exists and knowing that he exists. It's far better if we don't realise it. The devil is real. He's a real spiritual creature, a fallen angel. And he is the commander-in-chief of the forces of evil. He and his demons are very, very active in this world. As the Apostle Peter said in his first epistle, the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. What you are not to do, dear Christian, is timidly hide away from potential conflict Neither are you to resist temptation in your own strength. I'm sure that you already know as well as I do that when you resist temptation in your own strength, all you will ever do is bring forth sin. Every time. Guaranteed. 
when you try and resist sin in your own strength, you're caving. What you are to do is put on the whole armour that God graciously provides in order to stand firm when attacked by the devil and his demons. As shall be seen, the armour of God is both defensive and offensive. First of all, read um, if if you go back, let's see now. Yeah, looking again at verse 14. We're going to look at seven things here. Seven's quite an important number. It's a very special number in the Bible. We're going, it, it won't take us long, but we're going to look at the seven parts of the armour, the, the armour of God. Okay, first of all, verse 14. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness. First of all, your loins girt about with truth. The devil is the father of lies and unsurprisingly we live in a world that spins on an axis of lies and deception. Even though lying lips are an an abomination to the Lord, lies are rampant, lies are widespread throughout every level of society. World leaders who do the lust of their father, the devil, they lie or at the very least They're economical with the truth. You've all seen it, I'm sure, on your television screens. How politicians, they cannot give a straight answer to a straight question. And they lie. They've been caught lying so many times. These are our leaders. They lie. Also, you may well encounter lies in the workplace, work colleagues, you speak to a colleague, and you know that what that colleague has just said to you is actually a lie. Maybe friends in school, whatever, or even in the home, your own home, people lying. And in church fellowships, people lying. But you are to be truthful. You are to be sincere, remembering that your Saviour The Lord Jesus Christ is the truth. He came into the world full of grace and truth. So it really isn't for you as a Christian to be lying when your saviour is truth. Secondly, we've seen there in verse 14, the breastplate of righteousness. When you think about it, if an arrow were to pierce and penetrate a breastplate, which is there to protect vital organs such as the heart, it would be fatal if an arrow pierced the armour of that um, breastplate of righteousness. When it comes to demonic attacks, it is only those who are covered and protected with the righteousness of Christ who have everlasting life. They have everlasting life and they shall never perish, even with all those darts flying in their direction. The reason that the forces of evil cannot penetrate the breastplate of righteousness is because it is the breastplate of the righteousness of God rather than a worthless and ineffective self-righteousness that so many people in this world rely upon. Their own worthless righteousness which is as filthy rags before a holy God. 
God has justified or declared righteous all who are trusting in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what that means is that the perfect obedience unto death, even the death of the cross of the Lord Jesus, is credited to the accounts of all who believe in him, all he's redeemed, so much so that, as I've already said, they stand holy and without blame before God in love, an everlasting love, and there is therefore no condemnation to them. As Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 33 and 34, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? those whom he has chosen. It is God that justifieth. It is, in other words, it is God who declares righteous. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Wow, isn't that something? God declares us righteous as Christians, And so we have the righteousness of Christ. Also, Christ is in heaven making intercession for us. That's the righteousness of God for you. Let's move on to verse 15. And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. This statement means that you are to have a holy boldness and an eagerness due to the gospel of Christ that fills you with the peace of God that passes all understanding, but is nevertheless a peace that is a very real experience, a daily experience for you. This is how it is. If you really do understand the gospel of Christ and you are uh, a recipient of the grace of God, that will bring you that peace that passes all understanding. Who can explain it? But it's certainly your experience. And you go forward with that peace. When you are wearing those shoes, you are protected from the bouts of despair and depression that attend spiritual uh, conflict or can so easily attend spiritual conflict. Verse 16. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Paul seems to be alluding to the strategies that were employed in ancient warfare, one of which was to cover arrows with combustible material and set fire to the arrows before firing them at the enemy causing the enemy both to be pierced and burnt. Perhaps you can see the importance of having a shield for protection. The Romans, they had large red uh, rectangular shields that gave protection to most of their body. However, Christians need something altogether superior to that, to fend off the fiery darts of the evil one, the devil. They need a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hence, take the shield of faith. They need the saving faith of Jesus, one that will not evaporate when trials and tribulations visit them. That kind of faith is one that is the substance of a hope 
that reaches all the way up to heaven. It is a faith that has as its object the Lord Jesus Christ, who has overcome the world. The person who has that kind of faith says, In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid of what man can do unto me. But also, as well as offering protection against the fiery darts that are fired from without, that kind of shield, the shield of faith, protects against the fiery darts that are fired within. Darts that are fired each time you have ungodly or even blasphemous thoughts or when you dishonour the Lord in some other way. What happens then? With a truly repentant heart, you confess your sin and you ask for forgiveness. But also with that kind of faith, you thank God through Jesus Christ your Lord who loved you and who gave himself for you. With that kind of faith, what you don't allow is for, the, is for the devil to perch on your shoulder and whisper in your ear, your ear that you're not really a Christian, you're not saved, and, and, and so on and so on. It's by grace you're saved, through faith in Jesus, who has overcome the world. Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Looking first of all, the helmet of salvation. In in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 8, Paul referred to the, a helmet that is the hope of salvation. We don't see that in this verse here, it's just the helmet of salvation. Are there two helmets there? Hope of salvation, one of the helmets, another helmet, just salvation. Note that he says it in the present tense as well. Take the helmet of salvation in the present tense. In other words, it's the helmet that provides a hope of a final deliverance from the very presence of sin. With Jesus in heavenly glory, the hope of salvation in Thessalonians, it's that hope, by definition, makes you look to the future. So are we looking to, do we have a helmet that uh, causes us to look to a future salvation? Or do we have, as we see here, just a helmet of salvation, present tense? How about both? You don't really have one without the other. If you are truly saved, you're saved. You're, you're safe in the hand of Jesus forevermore. You're safe and secure in the hand of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ right now. And again, you have that assurance that you will one day be delivered once and for all from the very presence of sin. So it's both, isn't it? The hope, of, the helmet of the hope of salvation, the helmet of salvation, it's one and the same thing. It's a salvation that is in, for now and forevermore. It has to be said that far from wearing the helmet of salvation, there are undoubtedly more than a few professing Christians who are not wearing the helmet of salvation. They're wearing a paper hat. They seem to be wearing a paper hat that they've made for themselves and is probably better to be worn 
at a Christmas party. That's about all it's good for. And nothing else. It's most certainly not a helmet that offers any protection in spiritual conflicts. And that is because the wearers have never truly shown repentance towards God. They have never truly trusted in Jesus as their saviour from sin. Consequently, when the spiritual battles come, their faith in Jesus, their hope of everlasting salvation are found to be counterfeit and they just evaporate. Jesus spoke about that, didn't he, in his parable of the sower. Those who, uh, those, the ones who are sown, the seed is sown amongst the thorns when trials and tribulations come, they're choked and uh, that's the end of them. Also in verse 17, there is the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Up until now, all the armour has been defensive, but now we see a sword which is clearly offensive. The sword that is given by God, the Holy Spirit, is the word of God. In other words, it is the Bible which is pure truth and divine wisdom that the enemy is not able to reasonably resist or gainsay or contradict or deny. The word of God, the scriptures, is your weapon of offence, dear Christian. When the Lord Jesus Christ was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, he responded with the Old Testament scriptures. Are you able to draw your sword and respond with the Bible in spiritual conflict? And by that, I don't mean are you able to draw your Bible and beat someone over the head with it. What I mean is, are you able to quote relevant verses and relevant passages of the scripture? Are you able to say, it is written, or thus saith the Lord? It's not a bad thing if you are. Seventh and last of all, we have prayer. Look at verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Although prayer is the last of the armour that is mentioned, it is clearly not the least, neither is it a last resort, although you might think so, the way that Christians sometimes say, All you can do is pray. Instead of saying something like, the best thing you can do is pray. Prayer is a tremendous means of grace when you think that God has given prayer to us as a direct, uninterrupted means of communicating with God. The God of your salvation who hears and who hearkens to the prayers of his saints. As such, it's an act of folly not to pray always and to pray for everything. As Paul also said in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6, Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. So important to pray, isn't it? Nothing is too small, nothing is too great. 
to pray about. That concludes our look at the Apostle Paul's instructions to be strong in the Lord and to put on the whole armour of God in order to stand against the cunning and the trickery of the devil. We see the wiles of the devil in the Garden of Eden where the serpent, which was more subtle or cunning or crafty than the woman, deceived her. Consequently, what happened? She sinned and so too did her husband sin. Though they were perfectly innocent until then, they had no armour. We're at an advantage. Have you thought of it that way? We now are at an advantage over our first parents. We have the whole armour of God. All of you who belong to the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, are to put on the whole armour of God with the knowledge that at the cross, Jesus has by his own death destroyed him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Therefore, put on that armour with the knowledge that the Lord Jesus Christ has paid the price for all your sins and he has redeemed you with his own precious blood. Put on that armour with the knowledge that Jesus has gone to prepare a heavenly mansion for you. As for the devil, well... We're told in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10 that he shall be cast into the lake of fire. Finally, having put on the whole armour of God, you will inevitably be someone who follows the captain of your salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hearing his voice and with praise and thanksgiving in your heart, seeking to do that which is pleasing to him in his service. Amen.